Welcome, everyone. Good to see all of you this morning. I know this is like shooting fish in a barrel, but I'm going to tell a group of Seattleites who love to hike a great spot to go hiking. Are you ready? Got your pens ready? You got your Google Maps up? Like, I'm going to look this thing up. There's a place that I'd never been to before called the Tianaway Valley, which is east of, okay, a bunch of you know this. This is east of Klee Alum, 45 minutes, not that far. The Tianaway Valley is kind of remarkable. It is privately owned land, and then cutting through the middle of it is forest service trails and a Bureau of Land Management owned property that the community in Tianaway has kind of adopted. In other words, the feds worked with this community group to say, we want to make a bunch of these trails available to your community. Would you guys kind of be in charge of this and steward this? And so they have, and it's wonderful. And you get to see these incredible views along this trail that cuts through the Tianway Valley. This is a view that I really love because those mountains off in the distance there, those are the enchantments, but it's the backside of the enchantments. It's not the side of the enchantments that most people know coming through Leavenworth and doing the through hike. This is the other side of that, which is kind of cool. I've gotten to know the Tianaway community forest over the last couple years because my friends and I have run a half marathon along those trails. It's a trail marathon at elevation. It's super fun. Trust me, it actually is fun. Uh, and it's just been a joy to be able to kind of enjoy these views while I'm running. Like, it makes my normal running routes through my neighborhood, like, pretty lame. Like, this is better than looking at the 7-Eleven as I run by it, right? So, 2021 was the first year I did it. Super fun. Kind of a mom-and-pop type of race. If you're a runner and you've done races before, you know they can be these big, orchestrated ordeals, or they can be a little bit more small-town, kind of mom-and-pop. This is one of those. Like, there's a guy that has, like, a yellow vest on, like a safety vest, and he's the starter. And whenever he stands there and says, go, it's time to run, like, that's it. That, that, that's all that they have. There's not some big fanfare there. So we meet up there. There's about 20, 25 of us, and we're doing this run together. And in 2021, it was great. It was hard, one of the hardest things I've ever done physically. But it was really, really fun. 2022... I felt really excited to do this race because I knew the course, I'd run it before, I had some confidence from the previous year. My friends and I had trained, I had no question that like physically I was ready. But there were some surprises in store for me. First of all, as I started to run the race in 2022, this last year, my second year doing it, uh, there was more sand on the course than I remembered. A lot of the rocks and sort of the footing in this area is on some sandstone. And so if there's a lot of traffic on it, there's a lot of bikes or people running on it, it starts to break down. So there was more sand than I remembered. Running on sand is not fun, despite what you've seen in movies set in California. If you go running on the beach, it's miserable. So running on sand in the elevation of the mountains is particularly difficult. So start to run on some sand. This is in the first mile or two. Not that great, but I can do it. Then I get to the mud. And the mud was particularly pernicious because there'd been a rainstorm the day before. So good weather the day of doesn't necessarily pave over the fact that there had been a soaking rain the day before. So there's mud everywhere, like my shoes are getting covered, they're getting heavy. Okay, fine, sand, mud, we got this. Then came the snow. This is at the beginning of May, and so you never know, right, in uh, central Washington, like it could be pretty easy spring, it could be a wetter spring. This was a kind of later spring snow that had just gotten kind of packed down at different points and was super icy. That wouldn't have been a problem, except it was everywhere. There were whole stretches of this race that I just felt like I was slogging through the snow. 
If any of you are runners, if any of you are hikers, you know, if you find a whole bunch of snow and you don't have micro spikes and you don't have snowshoes and you don't have all that gear, it's going to be slow going, right? Like snow is not there to make you go faster when you're trying to run. So I was super discouraged. Add to all of that the mental side of running a race like this. Physically, you can be ready, trained, all the things. But if you've done long distance running or if you've done any kind of longer athletic competition, you know so much of it is up here. So much of it is how are you prepared mentally to kind of grind through that which is difficult, to get past the sand, get past the mud, get over the snow, like just go do the thing. Well, yes, but I flapped up against my limit of what I was capable of doing mentally. Like I was so discouraged by the time I got to like midway through the race, I just felt like I wanted to quit. And that doesn't happen to me. Like I can grind these things out. Like I'll make it through this, right? But by mile seven, I was kind of going, Oh man, a shortcut would be nice. Like, <laughs> how long would it take rescue workers to get me out of here? So around that time is when I ran into my friend Robert, who's part of my workout group, just a good buddy of mine. And he caught up to me at mile seven. I was struggling. And I said, hey, how's your race going? You know, we're just kind of talking as we're running. And he said, it's fine. Are you okay? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not. Like, I'm struggling. I'm kind of grinding this out. And I'm not kidding you. He turned to me and he said to me, well, now I know why I'm here today. I'm gonna help you finish. And so for the next six miles, the, basically the other half of the race, Robert, who's a very capable runner, just ran beside me. He gave up any dreams he had of getting his best record on the course. He gave up trying to you know, exceed athletically. Instead, he just stuck with me. And I showed you all this photo before, but I wanna show it again. This is my friend Robert and I, about a half mile from the finish line. I'm a wreck. Like, I look like garbage. My friend Robert is running behind me, like, he's helping me get through it. What the photo doesn't show is right before this, he was barking at me, like, come on, we're almost there. Let's go, let's finish. He could have run way ahead of me. This could have been a picture of me all by myself. And, you know, I would have made it through it. But my friend demonstrated what we are talking about in this sermon series. He demonstrated compassion. He put himself out so that I could have someone to run with me. It was an incredible act of generosity. It was an incredible act of selflessness. Compassion is a value and a virtue that in our world and in our culture is often framed as something like, well, everybody values compassion. Everyone does compassion. What I want us to think about, move toward, is not the idea of compassion as a virtue value or a morally good thing. I want us to think about it like Jesus did it he did it sacrificially. His greatest act of compassion, the cross, came at the cost of his own life. So compassion should not be effortless. We talked about this last week. Compassion in the Greek New Testament is to have your bowels, your guts, your inner being yearn for someone to get through their difficulty, to have sympathy for them, to pity in the sense of, I'm so moved emotionally that I will do something about this for you. That's what my friend Robert did for me. That's what Jesus has practiced all throughout these stories that we've been looking at. If you read through Luke chapter 7, you will see story after story after story of Jesus practicing compassion. And here's the other thing we learned last week. Practicing compassion is antithetical to your busy life and my busy life. It is. You will not stop. I will not stop and slow down and help someone if I do not value compassion. 
I got my thing to go do. I got to make sure that I'm on time for this appointment. I can't pull over and help that guy because if I do that, then I have to help everyone and blah, 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 blah. If you want to practice compassion in the way of Jesus, you have to let go of your busy life. You have to let go of your thinly veiled self-importance. You have to let go of whatever it is, the thing that you're going to go do. My friend Robert had to let go of his success on that run, and he just stuck with me. And it was slow, and it was hard, and I know he wanted to take off at different points. But he wasn't going to let his busy life get in the way of helping a friend. Will you? Will we? That's the question that's before us today. So we're going to talk today about a compassion that Jesus extends to one person, a woman, a vulnerable person. We know that Jesus practiced compassion for whole crowds. Matthew chapter 9 said he had compassion on a crowd of people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion broadly. And we can have compassion broadly too. But today's text is about the specificity of compassion. And my goal for each of us is that you'll walk out of here today and you will have how many people, church? One person. Say it with me. One person that you know you can go and extend compassion to or that you need to receive compassion from. So here's our outline for today. We're going to talk about how the Lord saw her, this woman, this widow, how he had compassion for her, his commandment to her son to rise, and the next steps. So if you want to open your Bibles, please do so. We'll be in Luke chapter 7 today. But before we get into the text, we need to talk about the context. Where are we? What's been happening in these passages? Ryan alluded to this earlier. In Luke's gospel, he's teaching. He's moving through the various stages of his ministry, but it looks and feels different than the other gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all telling the same story, but it's like different camera angles, different directors. The director of Luke's gospel is Luke, who is a trained physician, and Luke, interestingly enough, is one of the gospel writers who had a particular focus that was different. His focus was on writing these stories of Jesus in such a way that it made sense to people like you and me. Most of us, I believe, are coming from a Gentile background, not from a Jewish background. Luke was writing this story to his contemporaries, people who would not have been familiar with the language of Jesus' Messiah or the stories of the Old Testament. No, it's not that Luke didn't value those things, but he wanted to use different tools to help people see and understand who Jesus is. So his tools are not so much religious framework as it is a moral and ethical framework. Hence, when he's writing about the story of the two houses built on sand and on rock, like we talked about last week, he's not linking that into anything from the Old Testament. Instead, he's saying, hey, do you want to have your house built on sand? Let me show you, or built on rock? Let me show you how that looks. And we talked about that last week when he ministers, when Jesus ministers to the centurion. This was the scary-looking Roman soldier, the enemy of the people, the oppressor of the nation of Israel, that Jesus says, I care about you. I'm going to extend compassion to you. He took care of a slave of the centurion who was sick. He rescued him. He rescued the family from the grief and despair of losing that valuable person. And so this is right after that moment with the centurion where he is really shown compassion in such a way that other people start to say, you know what, there's something different about this Jesus person. Who ministers to their enemies? Who takes care of their oppressor? Friends, sometimes evangelism is just helping people ask those questions. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you struggle with evangelism like I do sometimes, sharing your faith, talking to people about Jesus, maybe all you got to do is help someone else go, who does that? Who cares for their enemies? 
Who ministers to a centurion? Well, Jesus does. We raise the questions where the answer is Jesus. Now, in today's passage, Jesus has moved along a little bit on the journey. This is a map of ancient Israel, the ancient Near East. Jerusalem is down here, and then far to the north, in actually the country of Galilee, where Jesus was originally from, is Nain, N-A-I-N. We don't know a lot about Nain, but one thing we do know, it is not Jerusalem. Nain is a small town. Nain is a community where people know each other. In the big cities, sometimes we have anonymity as uh, something that we think is a tool, but actually it's a curse. Because we live with so many people around us in a densely populated area, we begin to think to ourselves like, well, it really doesn't matter how I treat this person because I'll never see them again. Only in a densely populated context does that really begin to occur to you. If you've lived in a smaller community or if you grew up in a small town, you know that the way that you treat people is going to come around. People are going to know when you have shady business practices, when you berate your employees or your direct reports, when you misbehave. Those things that you might get away with in a larger context, you're not going to get away with that in a small town. Nain is a small town. And there's been a tragedy in this small town, which is where we enter into the story. There's a woman who has lost her husband, and now she has lost her son. And her grief is tremendous. What's the feeling when you've had that kind of loss, when you've had double losses? All of us who went through COVID, we experienced it differently, and it continues to play out. I shouldn't say it past tense. But we all experienced the same pandemic, we just experienced it very differently. And maybe you had double grief within that. Maybe you had someone that you love that you lost during the really dark days of COVID. If so, you've experienced that layering of grief because we all lost the way of life that we had pre-COVID and then we lost things within that. We lost jobs. We lost the ability to worship together for a really long time. That was a grief, is a grief, that I've continued to have to work through. And one of my great joys is when we're able to be together again like we are now. What does that grief do to you? What does it do to a person? Well, what it does in this moment is it allows Jesus to see precisely into this woman's heart. Think about it. She is being followed by a crowd of people who are there to sort of grieve and mourn with her. In the ancient Near East, when you lost someone, especially in a tight-knit Jewish community in a small town, you didn't just grieve quietly in your own home and no one came and talked to you. No, what happened is this. Your community came around you. This is a photo from 2021 of a Hasidic Jewish funeral procession in New York City and one of the very orthodox neighborhoods there. And so these men, these are all men, are around this uh, beer, B-E-I-R, not B-E-R, and they're carrying the body of someone that they knew. They're all dressed in black. They're all uh, representative of their faith by having you know, the long sideburns and all the traditional garb is there. This still happens today in traditional communities. In individualistic Western communities, we do not have this experience when someone dies. We might all come to a memorial service, but the actual effort of holding your hand up, everybody hold your hands up like this for a minute. It's hard to have your hands above your head for a while, isn't it? And then to hold something else up, that's difficult. But together, this community says, no, this person matters to us. We're going to carry them. We're going to remember them. And we're going to honor this family by coming beside them in their time of grief. So there's this 
sea of people around the woman who lost her husband. Now, that's crowd number one. Crowd number two, the text tells us, is the crowd that followed Jesus. After he performed these miracles, after people saw the kind of person that he was, people wanted to follow him, and so they did. And so there's this crowd following Jesus, there's this crowd of people around the woman who's mourning, and it's a little bit like if you've ever been in Soto when there's a Mariners game and there's a Seahawks game and everybody's kind of coming together, it's a little bit like that. They're nice to each other, but like they're not on the same team, right? There's this convergence. But Jesus does not get lost in the crowd. He does not get lost. He does not let the sea of people overwhelm him. I thought about this this week, and it just struck me as so, one of the things I love the most about Jesus, he will see you and he will see me in a crowd. He knows perfectly that everyone in that crowd is carrying burdens and pain, and they're they're going through stuff, right, because he sees people and he understands people perfectly. But in this story, he does not let the crowd distract him from the one person that he came for. And that's the woman who lost her husband and her son. The text tells us in verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her. When he saw her. Well, what did he see exactly? When he said, when the text tells us he had compassion for her, what, what instigated that? What lit that spark? Well, we don't have an image of this woman and what she went through, but great artists over the years have given us artwork that might help us a little bit. So I'll show you a piece of artwork that might strike you as a little bit bright and colorful to begin with, but it'll help. This is a painting from Pablo Picasso called Weeping Woman. He painted it in 1937. It's reflective of his kind of classical cubist style. And I want to share just kind of a little synopsis of what's happening here. Weeping Woman was painted in response to the Nazis' aerial bombing of the Basque town of Guernesia during the Spanish Civil War. This painting conveys a universal image of suffering. The model was a woman uh, who Picasso was connected to at the time, and the image recalls earlier artwork of a woman in sorrow crying over a lost son. Bold colors and lines create angular shapes and planes, depicting the face from various viewpoints. Unsuspecting of the forthcoming tragedy, the bombing of her town, this woman wears a a celebratory hat, a brightly colored hat. She's on her way to something. There's a, a festival or something she's about to go to when this act of violence happens to her community. And it compounds the poignancy of the image. Her handkerchief appears to be turning to ice or glass to symbolize her pain here. And then her pupils suggest the shapes of enemy airplanes over her head. This is a woman in grief who's witnessing an act of violence. And we don't know how the woman in our story today lost her son or her husband. We don't know if it was to violence or to disease. But if you've been through grief, you can relate to this picture. The woman in Luke chapter 7 isn't just grieving the loss of her son and her husband. There's another layer. Remember how Jesus would instruct his disciples, care for widows and orphans, look after people in their distress. Widows were not people who were going to have a lot of options moving forward. 
In a patriarchal society like in the ancient Near East, you needed a husband or you needed a male figure, you needed a son, you needed a man, if you're a woman, to help you get the connections that you needed to get the things that you needed. Whether it was resources for your family or food or jobs or whatever. And we may kind of chuckle at that and say, oh, how old-fashioned, but that's how it worked. And this woman, without a husband and without a son, is looking at a very bleak future. If you've lost someone you love, it is really hard to picture the future without that person. And it is a weight on your shoulders to go, what is it going to be like to not have that person around anymore? She's doubly facing that. She's facing the bleakness of her life without the resources that she needs. So she is filled with grief. Her future is bleak, and yet the Lord sees her. He uses his perfect knowledge not to be overwhelmed by these huge amounts of needs coming at him, these people from all different walks of life who need his help, need his rescue, need his care. He sees one person. He, he feels in his guts, in the core of his being, I have to move toward this person and help her. And here's what I want us to remember. Jesus does not overlook the pain of the woman in this story. He doesn't look past her. In John chapter 8, he doesn't look past the woman caught in adultery and avoid the moral quagmire that the Jewish leaders are trying to draw him into. He does not look past her pain. Church, Jesus does not overlook her pain, and he will not overlook your pain. He won't. You may not feel like he sees your pain, the distress that your family has gone through when you've lost someone, when you're figuring out how to live life with a chronic illness, when you're facing unemployment, not knowing where your paycheck's going to come from. He does not look past that. He won't. He won't look past your struggling marriage. He won't look past your children that are pushing back against you. He won't look past the isolation that you feel. We may feel like that, but that is not what Jesus is doing. He will not look past your pain. Thank God for that. Now, the text tells us that he saw her, and then he turns his attention to the sun, and he says this, young man, I say to you, rise. Who stands there and talks to a dead body? <laughs> that, that makes no sense. It shouldn't have any effect on that person, whether you're yelling at them to get up or not. They're gone. Jesus has the audacity to tell a dead person what to do. And everyone around him, under normal circumstances, is going, you're nuts, dude. Like this, there's no coming back from this. But in this context, it's perfectly appropriate that he says this for one reason and one reason only. It is his power. It is his undeniable power. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus has shown over and over again that he has power. When he heals someone, he shows that he has power over our bodies. He can remake our bodies because he was there at creation when our bodies were made. He can make things right again. He has the power to calm the storm. He has power over weather. Try as we might, with all of our scientific advances, we can't control the weather. But Jesus can. He can tell a storm to calm down. He can tell the waves to quit beating against the boat when they're riding in it together. And he has power over death. 
In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus is in a deep place of grief when he loses his friend Lazarus, and then he does what every person, I think, who lost someone they love wants to do. He makes it untrue. He brings Lazarus back. In Luke chapter 8, right after this story of raising the woman's son from the dead, he raises a young girl from the dead. His power doesn't just get spent and then he can't do it for a little while. No, he continues to use his power to bless and serve the people around him. What human beings cannot solve, Jesus can. What you and I cannot solve, he can. There are whole industries and institutes backed by massive amounts of venture capital trying to solve this tricky little problem called death. For all of our expertise and our advancements and our logistics and our ability to medicate and move things along scientifically and medically, the intractable limitation of human life remains so. You're going to die. I'm going to die. It's going to happen. But when Jesus' power comes into play, even death has to listen. Even death says, okay, Jesus, I'll get behind what you're doing. You probably have a story or two of Jesus' power in your life. Maybe it's not about death. Maybe it's about someone speaking a word into your life when you really needed to hear it. Maybe it's Jesus breathing new life into something that you thought was dead, like your marriage or your relationship with a neighbor or a coworker. Have you told anyone a story of Jesus' power lately? Would you? I think it's incredibly compelling for people outside of faith in Jesus Christ to hear simply that Jesus has the power that he does. Because there's nothing else in our world like it. What might be a story that you could tell someone about his power in your life? Remember, Jesus does not overlook the pain of this woman and he extends his power to her. He does not overlook your pain. Let's go back to this image one more time. When Picasso painted this, he painted a response to a scene of incredible tragedy and grief and sorrow. But he also painted an image of hope. You have to look for it. But he, he put hope into this painting. This painting embodies sorrow and the grief of innocent civilians during the war, showing the intensity of the woman's pain. Alternatively, it could be a self-portrait, conveying Picasso's distress at learning that his country, the very ground that he was born on, was being destroyed by civil war. Picasso's friend and biographer, Roland Penrose, who owned this painting, believed that it represented hope, including the healing power of mourning. In this light, we can see the painting differently. There's a tear coming out of her eyes. You see that kind of yellowish trail. And then there's her ear, her right ear, in this light of hope, becomes a bird drinking her tears, taking them away from her. And then that hat that she wore to go celebrate something, and it was interrupted by the bombing, in the middle of the hat is a flower, a fresh flower, symbolizing the arrival of new life. The story today ends with Jesus handing the woman her son, giving her son back to her. It made me think of uh, when our children were born and the 
the midwife or the doctor handed our baby to us for the first time. Here's your son again. He's alive. Do you know that Jesus sees you in your sorrow and in your sadness? Do you know that he has a word for you of hope, of new life? Maybe you've had to wait a long time to feel like there's comfort, to feel some relief from your pain or distress. Yeah, that happens. Maybe you wish the comfort that I've been talking about this morning that this woman, she receives her son back. Oh, that would be so nice. I, I, I wish I could say that that's true, but it hasn't happened for me. It hasn't happened for you yet. Yet. In Jesus' great timing and in his perfect use of his power, it can come. Like he tells the persistent widow later, ask, seek, and knock. Keep asking. If you've not felt comfort or hope in this pain that you've been wrestling with, in this darkness or this fear or losing someone you love, hang in there. Keep asking. Maybe it's showed up for you, this comfort, and you, you just haven't received it yet. You haven't seen it yet. Keep looking. If you're going through a season of burnout where you're just tired, you're frazzled, you're just... Everything seems to be on your shoulders. Keep asking. Jesus, would you just take this from me? Would you give me a break? Would you help me breathe again? It may not come in the way that you think, but that relief will be there. I was stunned and shocked when I was running that race, and I struggled so much. And I did not anticipate that my friend would come beside me and help me. It wasn't what I scripted for my day. But it was that lifting up of that burden. It was that ability of Jesus to use his power, to use all the things around me. Because he sees me. He saw me in my distress. Do you believe that he sees you in your distress? Do you believe that he sees that one person in your life that I've asked you to think about who really could use compassion? He sees you. He sees me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your good word and these stories of people's lives being changed. Sometimes it can feel a bit formulaic to come to church and to worship you and to sing and then to just expect to go home and kind of be the same. We, we ask that, that would not happen today. We ask that in this word about compassion and this story of your incredible ability to see someone in their pain and to bring hope in the restoration of this lost child, this lost son, would you remind us that such things are possible in our lives too? And we have the opportunity to step into that and the story that you're writing in our lives. So as we turn our attention now to being able to talk to each other and share a bit of our reflections, would you just bless the rest of this time, set it apart as, as sacred, as um, an opportunity to connect? And would you use it for your glory? We ask in Christ's name.